Well, uh, here at Bayou City Fellowship, uh, our vision, uh, the church that we aspire to be, is to be a church that is radically focused on Jesus, that is passionate about serving the city and the world, and uh, all while making uh, planting churches. So our, our vision, what we aspire to be as a church, is a church that's radically focused on Jesus, passionate about serving the city and the world while planting churches. And that first part of the vision statement, to be radically focused on Jesus, has two implications. One of the implications that implies is this, uh, that it's possible to just be focused on Jesus without being radically focused on Jesus. So you can have an ordinary, plain focus on Jesus, and we want to take that obviously to the next level, both commitment and focus and time. But also the other second implication is, is it possible to not be focused on Jesus, right? So you can have a focus that's not radical or you may not have a focus at all on Jesus. And if we're honest with ourselves, knowing our hearts, knowing ourselves, um, let me just ask this question. I didn't do it in first service. How many of y'all in here can honestly say you're like 100% all the time, 24-7, radically focused on Jesus every minute of the day, every second of the day. Anybody? Right? So all of us, like the song says, Robert, Robert Robinson wrote, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. And he talked about our hearts are prone to wander. And some of us wander for maybe five seconds. Some of us wander for five minutes. Some of us wander for five years. But we all wander from the Lord. There are times in our lives we say, God, I know you've got a kingdom, but right now I want to rule my own kingdom. I want to do it my way. And we wander. We daydream and our minds drift. And so we all tend to wander. But here's the thing. If Jesus is the lover of your soul and you love him with all your heart, soul, and mind, you say, you know what? I can't be in this place of wandering and drifting from Jesus. How do I now return to Jesus? And that's what we're going to look at today from Nehemiah chapter 10. How do we return to the Lord? How do we return to, to Jesus when he is not the radical focus of our lives. So turn there in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 10. How do we return to the living God? Nehemiah chapter 10. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. How do you return to him? Let's look at the verse right before that. Verse 38 of Nehemiah chapter 9. Just to continue from last week. So he says, the people responded, in view of all this, we are making a solemn promise and putting it into writing. On the sealed document are the names of our leaders and Levites and priests. And then what happens in verses 1 through 27 is it's the name of all the civil leaders, all the religious leaders, and the people that have signed this promise, this commitment, because they recognize this. Um, in Deuteronomy chapter 28, Moses lays out what are called the blessings and the curses, in the first 14 verses, he says, if you will obey God, if you're faithful to God, this is how God is going to bless you. But then in verses 15 through 68, those 54 verses, he says, now, if you disobey God, these are the consequences. These are the curses. And what they recognize is we're in a mess. We're in a jam. We're in a pickle because we have disobeyed God. Our ancestors and ourselves, we've been unfaithful to God. And the reason why we've had to rebuild the wall and return to God and restore our relationship with God is because of the fact that we have disobeyed God. We've experienced the last 54 verses of Deuteronomy 28 and not the first 14 verses. So here's point number one. And this is why they make that promise. This is a summary of uh, chapter eight as well. We hear God's word, we repent, and then we joyfully obey his word. 
We hear his word, we repent, we change our minds, so we realize that we read the word, study the word, hear the word, that God's word is true and that we may be living in a lie or deception. And we say, God, I changed my mind and a change of mind that leads to a change of direction, the other way, or a change of behavior. And now we, empowered by the Holy Spirit, joyfully obey. So point number one, just a summary of chapters eight and nine is we hear God's word, we repent, and then we joyfully obey. And they recognize that they have disobeyed God's word. Now, here's a principle. If disobedience to God's word got you into the mess, then recommitting to obey his word will get and keep you out of that mess. So if you find yourself today in a mess, in a difficult situation, financially, relationally, if you will just say, God, I know my disobedience, my desire for my kingdom, my selfish ways has gotten me here, if we'll just go backwards and say, God, now I've committed myself to do it your way. Um, how many moms do we have in this room? Any, if you're a mom, raise your hand. All right, we got a couple moms, quite a few moms. Okay, uh, how many of y'all in this room have a mom? If you have a mom, raise your hand. Okay, no aliens that just popped here on earth with no mom. All right, that's, so we've all have a mom, and I don't know about you all, but do, do you as a mom or your mom have what I call mom-isms. Those are those phrases your mom always says, right? Like mom-isms. Do your mom have any mom-isms, right? So in our household, at the Soma household, here's a mom-ism from my wife, Tara. If you come to our house and you're a guest at our house and there's a bunch of people over and you put your keys in your wallet or something at a, on the table or somewhere, and as the party's winding down and everyone's going home, you say, I can't find my wallet, I can't find my purse, I can't find my keys. And if you're a child or the husband and you say, you know what, I don't know where I've left my Bible. I don't know where I left this. This is what my wife will say. My wife will say this phrase, retrace your steps, retrace your steps. If where you are right now, there's something missing, your wallet, your keys, your purse, your jacket, whatever, then all you have to do is walk backwards, retrace all your steps of everywhere you've been. And hopefully what you're going to find is the wallet and keys, right? Or you'll find the purse or your Bible or whatever you're looking for. One time, uh, I often do this. I, when I go to a new city uh, to, on vacation or preaching somewhere, if I get there early, I'll go for what I call an adventure run. So I'll go and just kind of check out the city. So I'll put on a pair of running shorts and a top, and I'll just put my shoes on and usually the key to the hotel and maybe an ATM card or a credit card, and I'll just go run around the city exploring. But this is what I do. Since it's a city I've never been to before, and I usually don't run with my phone, I'll make sure... Gas station, ExxonMobil, take a right. Uh, park, take a left. What I do is I have these key markers that I see in case I get lost. And that happened a couple years ago. I was in Corpus Christi with my wife. That's where she was born. We we're there celebrating Thanksgiving. And I went for a run. And all of a sudden, I ended up, after about two or three miles, I'm like, man, I'm lost. Because all the palm trees start to look the same. But this is what I did. I'm lost. I'm not liking where I am right now. But if I know, I go back a half a mile. Instead of going right, I take a left at the Exxon Mobil and then take another right at the park and take a left here. I will end up where I'm supposed to be. And that's what's happening here. The people of God have said, God, we're in a mess. And we realize it's because we've disobeyed you. And so now we're committing to obeying you. Look at verse uh, uh, 28. Uh, he says this, then the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, singers, temple servants, and all who had separated themselves from the pagan people land in order to obey the law of God together with their wives, sons, and daughters, all who are old enough to understand, joined the leaders and bound themselves with an oath. They swore a curse on themselves, and this is from Deuteronomy 28, 
if they fail to obey the law of God as issued by his servant Moses. They solemnly promise to carefully follow. You can underline that word. Follow all the commands, regulations, and decrees of the Lord our God. Notice he didn't say to know them. He didn't say we're going to memorize them. He says we're going to carefully follow. We're going to obey your word. Because again, we're in a mess. We're in a jam. We don't like where we are. We're lost. And he says basically we're committing to retrace our steps, to go back to Deuteronomy 28 and obey your word. So here's point number two. Returning to God always requires a recommitment to obeying his word. Return to God always requires a recommitment to obeying his word. And that's why they're recommitting themselves. The religious leaders, the civil leaders, and the people and the kids who are old enough to understand say, God, we are recommitting ourselves to obeying your word. And we sign our names on this. Not to knowing it, not to memorizing it, not to have a vague notion of it, saying, we want to carefully follow. We're not going to look for the out clause or the exception where he says we're going to carefully follow your word. Now, John 14, 15, and I want you to get this sense um, as, I, as I teach and preach this. As we talk about obedience, as we talk about like commandments, the reason why God has given us his commands is twofold. Number one, to show us that we all fall short. We don't meet God's standard but the other reason why is because, and this is the first reason because God loves us too, God is loving and gracious because God loves you. God loves you. God loves you. He wants the absolute best for you. So imagine the perfect parent, which God the Father is. He desires his best. And he says, if you'll just do it my way, even if it's countercultural, even if it seems illogical, he says, if you'll just do it my way, you will experience my shalom the way life was intended to live, both in your finances, in your relationships, at work. You'll still have trials and difficulties for sure, but you'll experience life as I intend to be lived because I love and care for you. I love you. So it's a commitment to saying, God, we return to you and your love. We return to you with open arms because you're God, you're always there for us. That's why John 14, 15 says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. So I love worship. I love gathering. Matter of fact, next Sunday from 5 to 6.30, we're just going to have a worship night because Nehemiah 11 and 12, everything is restored and completed and they've returned to God. And so they have a time of just worship that can be heard for miles. And that's what we plan on doing next Sunday night. We're going to open the garage doors so that hopefully our neighbors can hear us singing and praising God. And so I think that's a way to do it, that you can raise your hands and lift and connect with the Lord. But in the text here, he says, the other piece too is a commitment to obey God. And for some of you scholars in here, I see some of you are Bible scholars. You're saying this, you say, well, that's Old Testament. That's Old Testament. I'm not a Jew. Like that doesn't apply to me. That's like old covenant stuff. Well, in Revelation chapter two, verses one through seven, Jesus is speaking to the Christian church at Ephesus, to believers. And he says, hey, this is what I commend you on. I commend you on this. He says, y'all endure difficult times. You work hard. You don't tolerate evil people. But he says, this is the issue I have with you. You have left your first love. Relationally, it's not there anymore. You have left me, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is no longer the radical focus of you as a believer individually and you as a church collectively. So what does he tell him to do? He says, repent, change your mind. And he says, return, do obey the works that you used to do. So it's this very same passage. He says, if you want to return to Jesus Christ as your first love, raise your hands and worship and sing. He says, but also remember this. 
It's returning to a commitment to obey God. Are you all with me? So this isn't just Old Testament, New Testament as well. Here's the three things they commit themselves to do. He says in verse 30, we promise not to let our daughters marry the pagan people of the land and not to let our sons marry their daughters. So here's uh, the first commitment, the first promise, a commitment to doing family God's way, a commitment to family God's way. Specifically here, he's talking about parents allowing their sons and daughters who are people of God, followers of God, to marry people who do not follow God. And this is the reason why that's going on. This is a temptation. They've come from exile. They don't have any money. They have very few way in the way of resources. The people who've occupied the land have become very wealthy from charging interest on loans and agriculture. They're very wealthy, but they don't know God. And so what a lot of parents are doing who don't have a lot of money, they've come back in exile, they don't have a name, they, they say, son, daughter, to the son, they say, hey, son, I, I noticed the executive vice president of your company. Man, she's beautiful. Man, she makes a lot of money. Her dad is also a president of this club and that board. Man, if you marry her, I know she's not a Christian. I know she's not a Christian. But man, this could give our family and you a bright future and your kids and our grandkids a bright future. They would say to the daughter, daughter, man, that, that boss, that general manager you work for, man, he makes a lot of money. He has a good name. He comes from a great family. I, I, we know he doesn't believe in Jesus and all that. But man, this could give your kids a leg up in life. And so they said they were allowing their kids to marry unbelievers. So this is nothing about ethnicity or race or culture or anything like that. He says, these parents are allowing their children to marry people who are outside of their faith. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians 6. He says, do not be unequally yoked. The yoke is what connects two oxen together. And this applies both to marriage, but also to, I would say, business and other partnerships. So if you're considering opening up a small business or going into partnership in a law firm or as a doctor, I'd encourage you to see what your partner values. If you say, I'm going to operate this medical clinic or this law firm or this new uh, consulting firm by biblical principles, and this person doesn't, and they're willing to lie, steal, and cheat and all that to get business, and you're like, no, I'm going to stick by this, you're going to have conflict. That's why Paul says, be careful of connecting yourself, binding yourself with unbelievers. And that's what he's saying right here as well. Commit to doing marriage, family, parenting, dating, all that according to God's word, God's way. Um, how, how many of you all, don't make the sound, how many Aggies are in the room? Raise your hand if you're an Aggie. Nine o'clock disobeyed as well. I asked you not to make the sound and you also had to make the sound. All right. How many of you all in here who are Aggies would hope one day your children, if you have children now or you know, would love to have kids, want your kids to go at AM as well? Raise your hand if you want your kids to go at AM. Okay? So if you're single here today, if you're single here today, you're an Aggie and you want your kids to go to Texas A&M University, marry another Aggie. I'll tell you why. So I grew up in San Francisco, the Bay Area. I was a rabid, die-hard San Francisco 49ers fan. My dad is a 49ers fan. My spiritual father, Richard Bach, is a 49ers fan. The Bach family didn't own a television in their house. They said, hey, we're going to raise our family without a TV in the house. The only exception was 49ers games. Only exception, 49ers games. 
So this is what I grew up in. I love the 49ers, and this is what happened. God called me to seminary, and I ended up in Dallas, Texas. And even though I was in Dallas, Texas, I wore all my 49ers gear loud and proud because I was, I love the 49ers. Love them, love them, love them. But then this is what happened. God placed my wife in my life. Now, my wife is not a big football fan. She's not a Cowboys fan. She really didn't care about football. And we met, and there's this quandary, this tension I had because I love the 49ers. And my wife did not love the 49ers as much as I did. Matter of fact, she didn't even care about football. And she was never opposed to it. My, my wife was never like combative. She's like, how dare you watch that on Sundays? Why do you keep following them? Why do you check the sports scores about the night? She's never negative about it, never at all. Matter of fact, my dad sent my daughters and I this. So you can show that picture. Hoping that I would raise my kids to be 49ers fans as well. So he sent our daughters, who were four and two at the time, 49ers hats and a 49ers cap for me as well. And I even had a good friend in Texas who in his man cave, he had this one room, he turned a man cave, painted it red and gold and put a big 49ers helmet on the wall. And he would text me like in the middle of a game. So I would come home from worship gathering. He'd text me during the game. Hey, did you see this score? Did you see this and this? You know, the Niners have won five Super Bowls. They've been in seven. This quarterback, this great person, whatever. And I'm texting back. But after about a year, I noticed this. And it was a slow drift. I would stop responding. Like I would sit there and I'd look at his text and I'd just put my phone down. And he said, oh, the Niners won. I'm like, great, exclamation point, send it back, right? And now, here I am, married 23 and a half years. And again, my wife was never opposed to the Niners. She never was never combat. Why are you watching this? Why do you have that Niners hat and that shirt? Never opposed to it. But now, I don't own a single piece of 49ers gear. I couldn't tell you who their coach is. I couldn't tell you who their quarterback is. 15, 20 years ago, I can name every single player, their coaches, their stats, all that. Their record. My daughters, they're not 49ers fans. So here's my dad who raised me being a Niners fan. Here's my spiritual dad who raised me a Niners fan. I really don't even care about the Niners anymore. My kids don't care about the 49ers. And again, my wife was never negative towards the Niners. She just didn't love the Niners like I loved them. And here's what happens, y'all. 1 Kings 11.4, Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived. Here's one area he was not wise. 1 Kings 11.4 says, towards the end of Solomon's life, Though he had a heart for God, he says, his foreign wives, who did not love God like he loved God, drew his heart away from the Lord. And this is the tension, you all. When you love somebody, when you love somebody, you will eventually love the things they love, hopefully, but also the things that are cold to, you will eventually become cold to as well. Very often, you'll become cold as well. And so my wife was never again against the Niners. She just didn't care about the Niners. Now, here I am. 23 years later, no Niners gear, couldn't tell you who their coach is, couldn't tell you who the record is. And so for the Aggies in the room, if you want your son or if you love Texas A&M University, if you want your son or daughter to have a picture of Jimbo Fisher on their wall, you better make sure you marry someone who loves A&M just as much as you do. Because what's going to happen, even if they're just passive towards it, you're going to find that your heart may drift as well. And here's the end of the day story. At the end of the day, at the end of the day, it really doesn't matter eternally what team you root for. It doesn't matter what college you go to. But here's what really matters. 
Because this is an eternal relationship, eternal life. Jesus says, John 17, 3, that they may know me, know the one true God, that they may know me. It's about an intimate relation with him. And here's my, my thing. Here's what happens generally. If you love Jesus with your heart, soul, and mind, and you date somebody, get in a relationship with somebody who they're not against it, they're just, they're not there. Either your heart's going to begin to drift and become cold, or if you enter into marriage, it's going to be a very difficult marriage. It's going to be a challenging marriage. And if you're there today, you're in that marriage where your spouse maybe is not negative, is not antagonistic to what you believe, but you're like, it's just difficult because I believe God wants me to do it his way, but he's got his own way. I'm sold out to Jesus and want to do the kingdom way. I'm praying for you. I know it's a difficult season. I know it's a difficult challenge. So be on your knees, pray. Uh, Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 7. He says, to those who are married to an unbeliever, hang in there. Because by hanging in there, you bring God's grace and blessing to your home, to your kids. So hang in there. But I will tell you firsthand from talking to people, it is challenging. It's difficult. So first commitment. Let's do family God's way. Let's do family God's way. And if you're there today, our prayer team is going to be up here at the very end of the gathering, and they'd love to pray for you, whatever you're facing. If you're like, hey, I'm single. It seems like all my friends are compromising, going out with people who are not believers, and they seem to be having fun. Or if you're there in that marriage today, man, my husband, my wife is not going in the same direction. Or it's just hard. They're going to be available after our, during our response time today. The second thing is this, verse 31. We also promise that if the people of the land should bring any merchandise or grain to be sold on the Sabbath or on any other day, we will refuse to buy it. Every seventh year, we will let our land rest and we will cancel all debts owed to us. So the second promise or commitment is a commitment of doing work God's way. So doing family God's way, commitment number one, and then work God's way. I don't know about you all. Maybe it's just carnal me. But whenever I read scripture, that's challenging. Like the tax law. I try to find a loophole. I see if there's like an out clause, right? And that's what they're doing here. They knew from Exodus chapter 20, verses three through five. They said, we know. Oh, let me, I forgot to mention this. Um, so doing family God's way, the, the, there's three times the Old Testament mentions marrying people of like faith. So Deuteronomy 7, verses one through four. Deuteronomy chapter seven, verses one through four is what they were disobeying. And now they commit to obey. Then in Exodus 20, verses 8 through 11, is the Sabbath, the Sabbath. So Exodus 20, verses 8 through 11, the Ten Commandments. They said, okay, we hear the Ten Commandments, that God wants us to set aside a day. And what God is not saying is one day a week is God's day. The other six days is your days. You can act the fool, cut up, do whatever you want to do. He's saying all seven days are God's day. But this one day, I want you to take time to rest to sharpen your ax, to focus on the Lord. I want you to take this one day. And here's the, the out clause, though. What happens, oh God, if me as a believer, I'm saying, God, I'm going to take this day to worship you, to rest, to sharpen my ax, but someone who's not a Christian, who doesn't follow you, says, hey, man, I got this business deal, man. Come on, let's get it, right? I got some money to be made, right? What happens if that happens? They don't believe in Jesus. They don't care about the Bible. Can I just, you know, sign a few documents then and do a little work then? And God is saying, don't look for the out clause. 
commit to saying, I'm going to have a day set aside. Every day is God's day, but a specific day set aside to focus on you. And he says, that's what they're committing to. Also, he says they're committing to letting the land lie fallow. So one day a week, I mean, one year out of seven to let the land rest after it's been planted on and then even debts. And here's the verses uh, from that about canceling debts. Exodus 23, 10 through 11 and Deuteronomy 15 verses one through two talk about the canceling of debts, the letting the land rest. And he says, God, we're committing to doing work your way. Now, this does not make sense in a culture that values activity and productivity. When you're like, you're going to take a day to rest and focus on the Lord because we value activity, productivity, the bottom line. And that's us being countercultural as believers. Now, here's the thing. Let me give you the theology of rest and sleep. The theology of rest and sleep. It says in Psalm 121, verses 3 through 4, it says this. God neither slumbers nor sleeps. What does that mean? One of the ways that we demonstrate that we trust God, one of the ways that we demonstrate that we have our faith in God is sleep. Because when you're asleep, when you're resting and sleeping, you can't conduct business. You're out of control. You're totally out of control. You can't control the economy. You can't control the market. You can't control what your boss is doing. You're totally out of control. But do you know who's wide awake and working and in control while you're sleeping? Come on, y'all. I told y'all before, the answer, if we're in the Old Testament, it's probably Moses. If we're in the New Testament, it's probably either like Jesus or Paul. And generally, the answer is always going to be God. God is neither sleeping. He neither sleeps or slumbers. He's on the job 24-7, 365, and leap year 366 days. God is always at work. So when you're resting, when you're sleeping, you are demonstrating your faith and trust in him by saying, God, I'm delegating this work to you. And I'm trusting that you're going to be working even when I'm resting. Even when my competitors are busy running around doing business, I'm trusting that you're going to be working. You're going to be lining up clients. You're going to be lining up patients. You're going to be lining up business for me. You're going to be lining up new opportunities for me, even while I'm resting, because God, you're always working. So it's a way for us to demonstrate that. And here's the thing. This is why I battle. I don't know if you battle this. I feel like I've always got to be in control. And that's why it's hard for me to rest. That's why it's hard for me to say, man, seven, eight, nine hours of sleep. Because I say, okay, God, please, you're in control. So a commitment to doing work God's way. And lastly is this, verse 32. In addition, lastly, we promise to obey the command to pay the annual temple tax of one-eighth of an ounce of silver for the care of the temple of our God. This will provide for the bread of the presence, for the regular grain offerings and burnt offerings, for the offerings on the Sabbath, the new moon celebrations, and the annual festivals, for the holy offerings, for the sin offerings, to make atonement for Israel, and provide for everything necessary for the work of the temple of our God. So here's the first part. And I know we're not in a theocracy. We don't operate in a theocracy. God is not the one ruling our nation and country. We're not Israel. We're in a democracy. But here's what they're vowing and promising to do is to support the work of God. It says at the very end, for the work of the temple of our God. So here's letter C, and I'll elaborate further. A commitment to doing worship God's way. Commitment to doing worship God's way. In verses 32 through 39, end of this chapter, the word temple of the Lord or house of God is mentioned nine times. 
house of God, in some translations, temple of the Lord, and some other translations. He says they're committing to supporting the work and the workers of God. The work and the workers of God. They're committing to doing worship God's way, which they have not been doing. He says in verse 34 here, he says, we have cast sacred laws to determine when at regular times each year the families of the priests, Levites, and the common people should bring wood to God's temple to be burned on the altar of the Lord our God as is written in the law. So they're going to bring wood to uh, sacrifice the animals, the brazen altar. He says, we promise to bring the first part of every harvest to the Lord's temple year after year, whether it be a crop from the soil or from the fruit trees. We agree to give God our oldest sons and the firstborn of all our herds and flocks as prescribed in the law. We'll present them to the priests who minister in the temple of our God. We will store the produce in the storerooms of the temple of our God. We'll bring the best of our flour and other grain offerings, the best of our fruit and the best of our new wine and olive oil. And we promise to bring to the Levites a tenth of everything our land produces. For it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all our rural towns. Verse 38, a priest, a descendant of Aaron, will be with the Levites as received these tithes. And a tenth of all that is collected as tithes will be delivered by the Levites to the temple of our God and placed in the storerooms. The people and the Levites must bring these offerings of grain, new wine, and olive oil to the storerooms and place them in the sacred containers near the ministering priests the gatekeepers, and the singers. And it finally says, we promise together not to neglect the temple of our God. So in this culture, they says, we're going to support both the work and the workers doing God's work. And I know, again, this is not the Old Testament. And I want to clarify this. Temple of our God, house of the Lord, is mentioned nine times in verses 32 through 39. This building right here that we're in right here, and I know we've, people said it as a call to, to worship, this building, the concrete floor below you, the roof over your head, this building is not the house of the Lord. This building is not the temple. This building is not the house of the Lord. And I know people have said that before, like, welcome to the household. This building is not the house of the Lord. I'll say it one more time for those of you who may have missed it. This building, this campus is not the house of the Lord. 1 Corinthians 6, 18 and 19, 1 Peter 2, 5 would say this. Actually, stop. Look at the person next to you and ask them if they're a Christian. If the person next to you said they are a Christian, they, you and I, are the temple of the Lord. 1 Corinthians 6, 18 through 19 says that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. 1 Peter 2, 5 says that you are a living stone being built up into, you're a brick, a piece of rock, being built up into this living temple. That's who you are. And he mentions here in Levites as well. He says in 1 Peter 2 as well, that you and I are living stones and we're also Levites. We're priests. And so here's the, here's the application. He says, don't see six days a week as my days. One day a week as God's days. All those days are God's days. Do not see 90% is my money. God gets his 10%. He says here, you bring the first, the tenth of all your resources in this agrarian culture. He says, really, every single dime that you have, 401k, bank account, your check sitting in your office drawer right now, all of it belongs to God. And you give a portion of it back as an act of worship, as an act of stewardship. Say, God, 
I want to see your kingdom work expand. I'm going to support what you're doing. The equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. I'm going to give towards your work. So it's even a changing of the way these folks view money, time, and their resources. So he says they commit. They promise to doing worship God's way. If I give you just another application, I'm not saying you have to be Mr. Olympia. I'm not saying you have to be an Ironman triathlete or Iron Woman triathlete. That's not what I'm saying. But now in this time, this season, your physical body, your physical body, you demonstrate stewardship, management, because God has given you that body to manage. We do, all of us in here, not just me, all of us in here, we do spiritual work. We make disciples. We share the good news. We do spiritual work through physical bodies. We do spiritual work through physical bodies. We're not called to worship our bodies. We're called to worship God with and through our bodies. And so that's why he says, let's take care of the temple. Let's take care of the temple in Jerusalem. And the application for New Testament believers is, man, let's take care of our bodies. Make sure you're getting sleep and, and exercise and eating right, managing stress, spending time in prayer, spending time in fellowship with other believers, encouraging each other. Let's take care of our health mentally and physically. Why? Because your body, my body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. We do spiritual work, spiritual ministry through physical bodies. So it's a commitment doing worship God's way. So here's the title for the sermon and the big idea. Returning requires recommitting. Returning requires recommitting. And that's what they're doing here. God, we want to return to a relationship with you. We're going to praise you and sing to you, but we're also recommitting ourselves to obeying your word, not knowing your word, not just studying your word, but recommitting ourselves to obeying you. We realize that we're in a pickle. We're in a jam. We're in a mess because we've disobeyed you. Our ancestors disobeyed you. We're going to go backwards and retrace our steps and recommitting our lives to obeying you and doing it your way. Three errors again in family, work, and worship. And I think that hits all of us in this room. Um, I was listening to podcasts recently, and um, this podcast mentioned the topic was what do you do as a pastor when what you're feeling, the emotions you're feeling, don't match the emotions of the text you're preaching? If the emotions of the text you're preaching are, let's say, very like forceful and dynamic, but right now you're feeling like elation and joy, or what happens if the text is full of like joy, elation, and happiness, and you're battling and wrestling with just anger and bitterness? What do you do then? And so the host said one time, I asked John Piper, the pastor of Bethlehem Baptist or former pastor of Bethlehem Baptist Church, if there was ever a time he did not feel like preaching. If there's ever a time that on a Sunday morning he didn't feel like preaching. And John Piper gave him this story. He said that his wife had gone to Georgia to care for her ailing father. And so while she was gone, this is what happened. His son ran away from home on a Thursday night. Just up and left. And here's generally why kids run away from home. They're not running away from the blessings of home. Perhaps a warm bed, a warm meal, love and comfort and care, maybe the family car, insurance paid and TV and video games and all that. They're, they're not running from the blessings of being at home. They're generally, unless they're in some kind of abusive situation, but generally 
They're running from the responsibilities and rules of a home. They want independence. They want all the goodies. They want the blessings, but they don't want the responsibilities and rules that come with that. So they say, I'm going to run away from home. So John Piper said, Friday goes by, Saturday goes by. He still doesn't know where his son is. Hadn't heard from his son. Sunday morning comes. He still doesn't know where his son is. So can you imagine two and a half, three days? Your son has been gone. You have no clue where he is. And so he said, feeling this in my heart, this distraught feeling, and so having to get in front of people and proclaim God's word, that is a time I did not feel like preaching. And so he shared with an elder what was going on, and the elder prayed that God would give him strength to preach. Now I'm going to tell you all this right now, all right? If that ever happens to me, right, and my daughter's run away, you bet Ryan Vinzant, Joel is going to be up here. I'm going to be out looking for my daughter. And I hope y'all will be gracious enough to allow me to do that. But his son still was not home. Now, I'm, I'm guessing, because they have a relationship now, that he eventually came back home. I don't know if it was Barnabas or one of the other kids. Barnabas Piper eventually came back home. But here's what happens. Whenever a son returns, relationship with parents, relationship back with home, here's the thing that happens. You're coming back both to the blessings of being in a home, but you're also coming back to the rules and responsibilities. You can't keep acting in rebellion and saying, I want to be restored. I want to return. Right? Amen? You can't keep taking out the car and staying out till three in the morning when you know curfew is 11 o'clock. You can't keep leaving dirty dishes in the sink when you know Hey, Monday nights, you wash the dishes. You can't keep saying, I'm too tired to mow the lawn. When you know, Saturday morning, you mow the lawn. So along with returning in relationship to us, and we love you, open arms, prodigal son, we're here for you. It also means a commitment to saying, you know what? I'm committing to the responsibilities and rules that come with being a part of this home. And that's what we're doing with God. If God is our father, and like the people here in Nehemiah know, we've strayed and we want to come back and return. We know you've got the best for us. You love us and you're back with open arms of grace and mercy. We're also saying we're recommitting ourselves. We're recommitting ourselves to obeying your responsibilities and rules, God, that you've given us because we want to return to you in relationship. Let's pray. God, uh, I'm grateful. Uh, this picture of the prodigal son who's run and now lived a life of independence and God, uh, our hearts wander. Our hearts do wander. God, we'll confess that to you. Our hearts and our minds, our minds wander from you. God, whether it's for five seconds, five minutes, five years, five weeks, months, decades. But God, I pray that we would have, as we hear your word, study your word, that repentance, that changing of mind that leads to a change of direction, that leads to joyful obedience and a recommitment to doing life your way. And God, perhaps if we examine our hearts as your spirit examines our hearts, we recognize there are certain parts of our life that we have said, God, this is off limits to you. I'm willing to do worship your way. I'm willing to do even like a, a time management stewardship your way. But God, when it comes to my money, I'll, I'll do it my own way. I got it, God. When it comes to relationships, God, I'll, I'll do it my way. God, when it comes to honoring my mom and dad, God, I'll, I'll do it my way. I got this, God. God, when it comes to my serving, I'll do it my way, God. 
When it comes to the truth from the words of my mouth and lying, God, God, I got this. I'll do it my way. Marriage, parenting, dating. God, I got this, God. I'll, I'll do it my way. God, whether it's our entire lives or a portion of our hearts and lives, that we say, we'll, we'll take care of it our way. God, we return to you now. A God who loves us with open arms. And God, we return knowing that you require a recommitment to doing it your way. And with every area of life, or every area of life, we are that living sacrifice. God, we recommit ourselves to you and doing it your way. Whether it's in our family, in our work. God, perhaps we're burning the candle at both ends, unknowingly saying, God, we really don't trust you. God, we really have to control everything and do everything. Or God, even if it's with our resources, God, I got this job. I get the checks. And God, you should be grateful for the, the, the money I give you and not seeing that it's God who gave us that job. It's God who is the source. That job is just the resource. That inheritance is just the resource. Those dividends are just the resource. But God, you're the source. God, you're the source of every gift that I have. You're the source of all the energy I have. You're the source of the character and work ethic I have. God, I want to support your work, your kingdom work, both here in Houston, but also around the world. God, I want to support your workers. God, we're all the priests, the Levites. We're called to make disciples of all ethnicities. God, I want to support that. So God, would you again lead us to repentance and recommitting to doing it your way. We submit ourselves to the King, King Jesus. And it's in his name we pray and all God's people said, amen. amen. I'm the prayer team come on up, my left and right. Uh, if you need prayer, there's something that you need prayer for specifically, generally, they'd love to pray for you. Also, if you have the Bayou City Fellowship app, it's available in the app store for Android and, and Apple for iPhone. Um, we'd love to pray for you uh, Thursday mornings at 6.15. We pray as elders, and if there's a way that we can pray for you, you can submit a prayer request there as well. So again, this is your time to respond to God and his word.